hey guys, welcome back to the Back Self Show. This week on the show, we have Megan Reynolds. She is an enterprise investor from Crane Venture Partners. Megan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. We've been trying to get you on for ages. Thanks for finally coming on. Last time I saw you, you were a cripple, and now you're uh, you're back out of the road being an athlete. But less of that, just for the audience, imagine we're on the first date. Tell me about yourself, what you do. Yeah, tell me a bit about what enterprise investor means. Awesome. And yes, thank you very much for having me on the show. It has been uh, has been a long time since mm-hmm. we've been trying to do this. Uh, and this time, I'm unfortunately not speaking to you with my leg up in the air uh, from an ACL injury. So uh, definitely in a better place. Um, cool. So we're on a date and I'm telling you about myself, like way to add pressure. Um, so I think maybe I'll give you like the kind of TLDR yep, uh, do it. overview. Yeah. And then let's just like dig let's into whatever's most it. interesting. Um, so from London originally, uh, grew up here. And then I actually studied something very weird. I studied ancient languages. So first off, total nerd. I mean, I mean, I mean, what ancient languages did you study? <laughs> I studied, I actually, so normally on, a, on the course you study like one, maybe two. I was like, I'm going to do three. So I studied uh, Latin, ancient Greek and Sanskrit. Of course, of course. And so, you, well, Sanskrit's great because that means when you go to Thailand and get a tattoo, you know what it actually says. Yeah, so that, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I can like read them on, yeah. the, on other people. Latin's cool because you know, it's good for being romantic. And uh, what was the other one? Ancient Greek. Ancient well, that's Greek, handy. Yeah, which, like, so I can kind of like translate modern Greek a little oh, bit. Oh, it's really good. So great time. And you can go there because of COVID. So it's, you get down there. So actually it's worked out really well. You saw huh. the future. I'm, I'm a good high achiever straight away. Went for three instead of two. Um, and you're fluent in all of them and you still speak them now, right? Absolutely. Day in, day yeah, out. I've not dropped any Amazing. Of it. And so that obviously, yeah, that said to you, yeah. look, okay, well, naturally, there's so- solid progression there is let's go straight into VC. <laughs> of course, I should be an early stage investor in uh, deep technology companies. That was the, the very straightforward path. Um, so, no, so alongside being a massive nerd at university, I also kind of self-taught um, finance, economics, kind of like almost like kind of seeing it as another language. You know, there's just like so much exclusivity in like understanding how finance works, um, especially as someone who wasn't studying a mathematical or financial degree. And so I kind of saw it as this like linguistic challenge, um, which was fun. And so actually that my first job at university, unusually was uh, I became an uh, equity, public equity investor actually out in Hong Kong. So very uh, non-direct path from my linguistics degree. So what, what, I mean, what attracted you to that? Was it you... you... And also, like, if you've gone to do um, such an academic subject, like, what was it that made you think, do you know what, I want to get into that side of things? Was it, were you, were you chasing the money, which is, which is cool, that's fine. Or was it just like, you just wanted to be part of the Hollywood side of the world and just see, like, the big deals and the big things going on? It's a good question. I'm not too sure exactly what stuck. I think it was partly kind of like learning this whole new world and like kind of seeing how everything moved around, like all of these different systems moving globally. Um, and so I kind of interned my way around London, doing different like investment banking and working in private equity. And I think what really stuck was just the opportunity to go out and work in Hong Kong, invest in Chinese large cap tech stocks. And these companies were growing like crazy. Like they're a huge company like Tencent, Alibaba, et cetera founded in the last like 10, 15 years. And at that time they were just still like rocketing and you could really see the different kind of consumer behavior versus in uh, China versus Europe, America. Um, so I think that was kind of what caught me, um, not to ramble on too long. No, I liked it. No, that's okay. And so you did that for a little while. Well, how long you stuck there for like two years? No, 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 really, actually a really short stint. Um, so I say that like I was uh, an investor for a long time. So I actually only spent half a year out in Hong Kong. Um, I think I quickly realized 
that firstly I love London I think London is an incredible city for business but also just like the anonymity whereas Hong Kong global metropolitan city but actually a really small town in a lot of ways um and and also investing in Chinese tech stocks I could read some stuff but actually for a lot of companies I was analyzing a lot of like the really interesting analysis was was in Mandarin and I don't speak Mandarin so, right. so, so you, quite so you learned three you learned three ancient languages and you thought you know what best move I'll go somewhere they speak Chinese <laughs> yeah I'll go um, and, like try and learn another one and I think you know I would have been a much longer term and obviously investing in like the Hang, uh, Hang Seng lots of the companies are like Hong Kong based and you know documents written in English but there was definitely a barrier okay and so you 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 decided you hated it and hated uh, Hong Kong decided to come back to great London yeah exactly yeah so when you came back here you um you went to EF is that right no so I actually started at Crowkey um so I came back oh yeah of course with Luke yeah yes yeah with Luke and Darren yeah. um yeah so I actually I came back I was like right okay I've seen these huge companies I've seen these like global growth companies like how do, how do they start like what what is that initiation like how did these like really young companies get there um and so I got in touch with well I was put in touch with Crowdcube and they were kind of built they had this really anarchistic kind of hey you know you don't need to raise venture capital we're gonna build like a, the biggest angel platform to enable companies to to grow um so yeah I was just really captured by the vision and figured I could pr- probably try and learn how those companies really start off from the beginning that's really fascinating so um also congrats to those guys obviously that that merger yeah, yeah. um really confusing I don't know who bought who or what happened <laughs> yeah or I think it's like pretty even split I think yeah it's really hard slightly bigger than Cedars but I don't know yeah, they, I mean, we've had all the business BD guys coming at us for ages. I like, bet. I don't really. Yeah, that I'd would like, be me. <laughs> yeah, as I don't, so that's what you do. So you were BD. So you were going out, finding businesses that you thought would be a good fit for crowd investing. Yeah. Exactly. So what is that? So like, there's a lot of people who've listened to this who'd be like, yeah, I'd love to do some crowd investing. Like, it's pretty anonymous. Like, you know, you just get, it's quite, it's, I, it's a way to raise, you know, some some of the guys have been on the show, have been incredibly successful, uh, Coconut. Uh, yeah. A friend of mine, Sam McConnor, came on and he he smashed it. Um, absolutely loved it over there. Um, what is it that makes a good crowdfundable business when you were trying to reach mm. out to them? So most of the stuff that I focused on, so like Coconut, really like consumer fintech um, was kind of really core for us. Was Coconut platform. one of yours? Uh, I've definitely, I've definitely spoken to them at one point. I don't know if, nah. I mean, I wasn't the one that like got them on the platform take, in the end, but I definitely credit, the had hit them up. Um, so I think like, yeah, consumer fintech is very clear. I think companies where... You're, there is a direct alignment in the, I mean, the time I did it, it was like 500,000 investors on the platform. Um, but there's a direct alignment between the customers of Coconut or Monzo or Revolut um, and the crowd that Crowdcube itself had amassed. And so where you both have your own crowd of people who will probably understand early stage investing and love your product, love what you do, and so much so that they want to be invested in your company. And so having that crowd, firstly, as a company, and then also the value of accessing Crowdcube's crowd, like when those two things aligned, those were the most successful raises. So just so I can put that in terms that I understand, because okay. you're much more, yeah, I'm not as smart as you are. So am I looking for, am I basically looking to raise money from people who would be my customers? Well, ideally, I think like, and the value of that specifically is that we would see companies that raise money on Crowdcube, for example, Revolut, um, they would see uh, like 6x uh, improvement or 6x value from the customers that became investors. So whether that's 
through revenue or whatever measurement that is, like those people who are invested in your company and some of these would have like 5,000 plus investors are incredible customers, advocates of Angelus. And so if you use crowdfunding right, you can really build a valuable community. Uh, and so those are the companies that I would kind of try and find. Oh, that's interesting. So like, what kind of stage do you do that? When, if, I, if I'm mm. listening to this right now and I'm a company and I'm trying to raise some money and I'm thinking about doing a crowd, like when do I do that? Because I would, I would assume like, you know, you might have like a Kickstarter, which is like super ready. But if I'm going to Crowdcube, like surely I'm going to need some traction. I'm going to need a product. It can't be pre-product, surely, if I'm going to go that, that route. I don't know. Like you tell me. I think it really depends. I think you have the brew dogs, the Revolutes, the Monzos, the large companies that can kind of use this as almost like a marketing tool. Um, so that's mm. like one end of the spectrum. Obviously, it's not applicable to everyone. I think you then have the really early stage companies. So maybe the founders who don't have access to capital. And so don't have this like host of angels or they don't know VCs. And so for them, this is just a really viable channel to, to kind of put it out there and see if they can raise some capital. Obviously, slightly more risky than, say, a Monzo. Um, and then you kind of have the middle sphere where it's a little bit muddier. Um, but usually people who have some angels who are already invested or they have some capital. Um, and so for them, it's really just like a top up. It's both top up and marketing. So you make sure you raise the amount that you want to raise. And you can also create some evangelism, maybe reach new customers that you didn't have before. And it becomes kind of like a early stage marketing tool. So not to go into too much detail, but those are the kind of like three different spaces. Each have their own. I really risks. like that. It's super interesting. I think it's a really effective way. I'm a big fan. Um, but you didn't like it enough because you left. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, like, you, so you know, just scrapping these companies is like, oh, no, obviously learned, yeah. learned so much from that. Did you have any, uh, do you have any big name successes that you picked out? My, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, I uh, My yeah. first ever deal, the first, like, when I was like, okay, crowdfunding, I kind of don't know what that is, was free trade. And so I, like, rocked up. They were raising £100,000. I don't know if listeners will know free trade, but they're a kind of Robin Hood trading platform for free. Yeah. Um, and so I rocked up to Adam's office and I met with him and I was like, hey, I don't really know what crowdfunding is, but, like, I think you could do it really well. And, like, this is a really exciting yeah. platform, you know, Robin Hood for yeah. the European market. Uh, and so we did that one. And now he's raised, like, I think a few, like, quite a few million out from the platform and he's also raised from excellent investor vc investors uh so yeah that's my little like claim to fame of uh, my first ever deal right so your first ever deal was your best deal so you got yeah, yeah, worse yeah, exactly. you're the worst employee ever yeah yeah <laughs> exactly i just rode on that one like him coming back for more rounds um yeah no he was he was definitely a favorite okay and then you left there and you went over to um entrepreneur first tell me about entrepreneur first so Entrepreneur First, I should probably explain a bit about it for listeners who maybe won't know it. Um, yeah. So Entrepreneur First is basically a program for people who want to start a company, but maybe don't have an idea um, and specifically don't have a co-founder. And so what Entrepreneur First is, is a six month program for individuals to come join a group of around kind of like 80, 90 people who all like don't have an idea, want to build a high growth company and are looking for a co-founder. And so it's almost like a matchmaking process, company builder, um, where you actually get paid to explore ideas and build a company. Um, so six month programs, we do it uh, London, now Berlin, Paris, Singapore, it's, it's become a global fund. And the key thing That's is after, after the kind of process of finding a co-founder, EF will then invest in a selection of the companies that are successfully built and they'll invest 80,000 pounds. So it's like, pretty incredible accelerator if you can go from 
no idea, kind of want to build a company to building a high growth company in six months. So how, and how did you get into that? Because I mean, like, oh, first of all, I mean, as someone you, if I'd known about entrepreneurs first when I left uni, holy sugar. Yeah. Like, if you'd be like, this it's is cool, the, right? this is the dream, right? You know, like, um, uh, yeah. Just, I mean, even now, like any stage, like it's the dream. Uh, it's the dream gig. I imagine it's hyper competitive to get on there. But like, what was, how come you went there as a, what was your role there? What did you go as? joined so when i joined um we had just raised some money from reed hoffman who's one of the linkedin founders um we just raised a bit yeah exactly just drop that in there um (laughs) so we just raised a load of money um and we the the company ef the the kind of program was going from essentially like it was pretty small team it was maybe like 30 people in london going from one person who was doing the whole program he's a guy called zephy um brilliant mind but he was like stretched mega he was like working with 90 people and helping them figure out ideas and build their companies and kind of test ideas with them. Um, so he hired me and then uh, we were two people and then we built a team of 15 over the next two years. Uh, and we then scaled the program from not across London, Europe, uh, sorry, London, Berlin and Paris. Um, so yeah, the job was really just like kind of shadowing Zephy, kind of becoming Zephy as much as I could. And then kind of helping him work with these companies very hands-on. And also our group of angels who uh, had all, successful operators, uh, people who'd sold companies before, who would then kind of come in and assist us in helping this group find ideas. And what was it? So, you know... Um, it's an amazing job also. <laughs> it's like probably yeah. one of the most incredible jobs I'll, I'll ever do. Yeah. But what, what what were the kind of key things that were the defining factors to people who were successful on that? So like, mm. you know, you get a lot of people who come in and they talk about the success of their... Um, their product being because it's the right market it's a huge market it's a good product um they've got some great traction or whatever it's gone really well but reality is it really comes down to the people um tech stars their mantra people 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 market traction idea like for you when you were looking at those those candidates and those people who are smashing it like what were the defining characteristics of those founders that because even to get on the program they must be exceptional but then once they're on there and they've got through it and they've made a business that gets funded and then they go on to success. What was the defining characteristic you were looking for mm. in these candidates that made them stand out? It's, good. it's a great question. And I think if anyone gives you like the exact answer for that, like definitely let me know. I think that's their kind of multi, multi-billion <laughs> yeah, sure. dollar answer. Um, sure. But, you know, we obviously had frameworks and we had ways that we thought about it. I think firstly, it's important to say um, the way that EF works is very specific. They build very specific companies. It's very deep tech focused. And so the kind of talent that we would bring into the program are both business people. So kind of like half business people um, who have maybe had commercial roles, um, lives a little bit less kind of strict in that sense. But then half of the cohort are people who are world leading in the technology that they have built and have like no idea for a company necessarily, but a like really unique approach into how they think about a certain technology. Um, so kind of... Uh, lasers or uh, 3d printing or uh, you know really deep machine learning um so that's important to say um and so i think from there i think the thing that i really learned at ef is a concept of like intentional innovation and i think we were always very conscious at ef that we would never be the place where snapchat was built there are so many incredibly valuable companies that are whether it's built out of chance or built out of, you know, a deep experience that someone has and they kind of figure it out. Um, I think we were very conscious that a six month program probably wasn't going to be where those companies would be built. And so by intentional innovation, I mean the kind of talent that we brought in would be people who had worked in a very specific field and had seen problems um, in a uh, kind of very unique way. That's really fluffy, but 
people who have deep domain experience and kind of see like, hey, it's crazy that the way that uh, we track shipping containers, like no one tracks it and we need more data and I can build this data layer. Um, so it's very specific. Um, and I think from there, you can really trace back to what kind of talent would be like the best team in the world to build a company like this. And so that was kind of how we thought about it. Um, yeah, so not to go not to go too deep, but that's kind of, and then I think the, the measurement of success, this is six months. We don't have a huge amount of time with these people. And it's a very, you know, they're building companies and they'll not change ideas. I think the, the one key thing that was a predictor of success in all of this was productivity, purely productivity. And I think there's a lot of things that go into that um, being, is this something you really want to build? Like, are you, is this a company that you identify with so strongly that you are just going to like sit in the biscuit factory, which is the warehouse in Bermondsey where all these companies are made? Yeah. Um, do you want to just sit in there 24 seven, like, you know, talking to as many people as you can to make this company a reality? Um, so it sounds really simple, but actually you can really see when teams and maybe it's because, you know, you just really have found the person that you want to build this company with. And so you feel a responsibility to each other to really work on what you're doing. And so, you, yeah, it's not kind of hard to verbalize, but that was how we would measure success. I totally, I totally do that. I mean, you, you see all the time, like occasionally, like, um, yeah, I've been on some accelerators and so forth and uh, worked with a lot of startups. And occasionally you'll, you'll meet people and you're like, how much have you got done this past week? You know, like, yeah, like, what? You built what? And how quick? You know, like, it yeah. just blows your mind. Like, and, um, you know, there's something about productivity. Like, it's not, it's not how long you sat in your seat, right? It's just like, it's how much you're getting done when you're yeah. there. You know, you exactly. do get, you know, whenever you go on an accelerator, um, you always see people who just sat in the office all the time and you're like, what did you come out of this with? Yeah, but occasionally you'll see someone who's just like smashing the keyboard. And that, again, it's just like, it's a super, di- I think it's, uh, I think you're right. I think that is a superpower of a founder, you know, um, it's definitely on that. I think one of the, yeah, super, I mean, all founder superpowers around like just creating excitement and just getting stuff done. And know, I think it's worth that. saying like, it's not even a personality thing you would see founders who would be working with one team and on one idea and, you know, they'd kind of come in and they'd be like, oh, you know, work building this, it's exciting, but you could see it wasn't there. And then suddenly they'd uh, work with another co-founder, build another idea, build another idea, and they are a different person, like the most motivated, you know, customer calls week on week. Um, so yeah, just worth saying, like when you find the right thing, um, yeah. productivity is just like an outflow. I really like that. I think it's quite profound as well, because I think, you know, there's... Um there's something in that, isn't there? Like if something feels like work, I say to people, so I'm like, you've probably got the wrong business. You know, like if you, if you feel like, I, you know, it's like with, um, I'm going to speak from my experience with, uh, with, with Stakester. Like if ever I feel like I'm going to work, I'm like, this is, I'm in the wrong game. I shouldn't be doing this. Like it should feel like fun. You know, like you should get excited about doing a uh, cash flow forecast for an investor. <laughs> yeah, like, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it's something dream. that really comes through, right? Like I know, like you know, from the times that we've spoken, and you know, just like feel how excited you are about your company, and obviously that's you were, yeah, it's, that's it. I said yeah, you should you should be excited about it, and if you're not, like I said, sack it off, do something else. <laughs> okay, great. So you so again, you um you had a really good job, but you didn't like it enough, and so you left. Okay, um, improving on me, like wrecking these companies. Uh, yes, yeah. they had a, had an amazing job. Um, see, I think like kind of got to the end of that, like both working with, I think, God, it must have been about. 50 companies that we built in the time that I was there, um, which is like a hundred founders, lots of experience, exhausting in a lot of ways. And we'd also scaled across Europe. So we'd replicated the program and the like almost product that we built around it. We replicated that across three more geographies of Europe. Um, so I think got to the end of that and it was like, 
okay, learned a lot. I have my own personal thesis from the founders and the companies that I've seen built. Like I want to take that to the next step. I, I want to start investing in companies um, in the best place possible of EF where I was pretty open with them about what I wanted to do. Um, and so they were super supportive, opened their networks to me. Um, yeah, so I was, I was in a very fortunate position. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a personal question for you. Um, one I'm always fascinated by when I speak to VCs. So like, why investing in companies rather than building your own because like if you're you know you're surrounded by these people all the time and you're probably like look i'm i'm hanging out with these kids and they're doing or kids or adults or whatever and you're like these guys are smashing it and it's like i've got these skills i'm, I'm jammed yeah do you know what i mean I, I know what these guys are doing i know i know all the theory i've got it all yeah you're a rock star i can see by the guitar you know like <laughs> and um and you know what was it that made you think i want to be on the the fun side not on the build side that's a good question and I think like the thread, the thread through my career has been this like singular problem of like, or singular question of like, you know, how do you create value from the earlier stages in the company? Like how do you create value in a company or through a company? Um, and so I think definitely like, one route of that is just like build your own and just like figure it out. Um, but I think I actually came out of EF with this like, re like real clarity on, I've worked with some incredible talent, some people who have you know, skills that I will never have for sure. Um, but just like see the world in a completely different way. And I think never say never about building my own company, but I was super clear coming out of EF on like, I back these people. Like if I do one thing, it's follow these people and, you know, help them in some way, if I can use my skills to support them. Um, but if I can invest in them, if I can get like a share in the value that I know they're going to create, um, you know, that's going to be an incredible for me intellectually personally uh, yeah, sure. so yeah just had that real clarity and maybe that changes in the future um but yeah, i was sure. really fortunate to find that at crane as well that's good so so crane so you're an enterprise investor there what yes. does that mean uh so enterprise enterprise investor so crane is a fund we're very focused in what we do so we invest in enterprise software only or b2b only um so we don't invest in consumer etc um so we invest in enterprise software we invest at seed stage across Europe, and we work with companies on the go-to-market. Well, you're right in the, the sweet spot of my brain there. That's all I care about. So the, um, okay, so you're, when you say seed, what does that mean to you? Because it means something different to everyone at the moment. And it, and it really does. And I think we say that because we are actually quite flexible in how we think about seed. So I usually say like all flavors of seed. So we can go like kind of pre-seed, we can go early and we can go post-seed. Uh, I guess I should say, like, we invest anywhere from one to two million. And we invest typically in technical product led founders, maybe with a couple of engineers that they've already hired. So that's the kind of like company stage, product built, um, some level of pull from the market, some indication that the market that you've identified wants what you've built. That's our stage. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, some evidence attraction or something like that. Super, yeah. That's really, that's, that's a sexy stage. Yeah, yeah, um, really good because like competitive, super high risk, but also super big reward, right? If you get it right, and um, and why and why and so as a straight B two B, 
uh, but selling to enterprises, okay, fine. Mm. And you help with them their go-to-market. Now, that's fascinating. If a VC is going to come in and tell me how to do my job, like, what does that mean? What does that mean when they come in and they help out? Because I'm fascinated. Because you must see, actually, but take that, probably selling this for you a little bit, you must see so many people doing it badly, yeah? And so many people doing it well by virtue of the fact that they are doing well or they're doing badly. And so what does it you mean when you come and you help with the go-to-market? Are you making intros for them or are you just helping them build a strategy? What are you doing? So I should first, I should firstly say I, I actually advise if I'm working with founders that we're not investing in, I actually tell them like, never believe a VC if they say they're going to give you a value add. Don't like, if they say it, like words are nothing. Um, so as someone who says it, like I really strongly believe, like as you say, right? Like they can say what they want, they need to prove it. Um, and so that's like, firstly, really with you on that. Um, and so for Crane, I think the really unique thing about what we've built as a firm is that because we only invest in these companies and really specifically, we invest in uh, technical product-led founders building proprietary software, usually products with a strong data angle to the proposition, um, solving large enterprise problems. So that is all we invest in and it's very narrow. And because we only invest in those companies and we have a portfolio of now maybe like 35 of only those companies scaling from Europe, we've basically learned the really specific challenges that all of those companies face scaling from seed to series A. And that's all that we do. And so on top of that, not only do we know those challenges, we've actually built our team around those specific challenges. So we've kind of gone that step further. So we have an investment team of four people, two founding partners and myself and my colleague. Um, and then we have five people on our kind of operating partner team. I think lots of funds have like operating partners and people who are operators that they bring in, but we've literally brought- What does these, that mean? So, what does that mean, operating partners? So they are basically our portfolio team. So they work exclusively with, or not exclusively, they can work with other companies, but they work with our portfolio. Um, so for an example, um, Rav, who was, uh, he built customer success at Slack before then Zendesk, before then Yammer. And so one of the challenges- lot, isn't Yeah, exactly. Right. So like really deep, Cash. deep expert in customer success. Yeah. And we've really seen that that's yeah. one of the things that European companies really struggle with, really deeply understanding customer success. And so who will come in and work with all of our portfolio companies on building frameworks, like how to hire properly, like anything pre-sales, post-sales um, around customer success. And he has a brilliant mind. Um, so he's one of those people. We also have Anil, who is a product positioning expert. So for te more technical companies, again, one of the things they tend to struggle with is like really being able to communicate what the product does, why it's valuable, simply and clearly. Like pretty much all companies from seed stage to series A, even post series A, really struggle with that. And so he will come in and do focus sessions, workshops, everything that he needs to do to help our companies do that better. Um, and we have more people on that team, which I can, I don't need to dive into everyone, but they are all also, Anil was the former VP marketing at a data company called Honeycomb in the US. And he had kind of previous VP marketing experience before then. So like really senior, really, really um, deep experience in that specific field. And we pay them to work with our company so that they don't have to. I think the challenge is that for these kind of challenges, there's no talent in Europe. There's no really strong talent in Europe. And so we've hired that talent in from half from the US to work with our companies to build up those structures. I've experienced both of those problems in real life, um, having started a B2B data business. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and it's not, you know, B2B. we don't necessarily solve them, yeah. but we really give companies like the ability to build, cap like to build the capabilities and uh build talent in that space. Amazing. Genuinely, like that's um, that's super cool, super progressive. Got a couple of like functional questions here, which people always want to know the answer to. So 
When you're looking for a business, what is it you're looking for? You know, you, you obviously talk about the stage and you have those the generics there. You say about like, we want someone at this stage who's got some evidence of this. But like, that's just get someone in the door. That's someone, that's the means you're going to, you know, look at the deck. It's got the tick box. Then they're going to start pitching to you. And then you're going to start making a decision whether you want to invest in them or not, right? Okay. And I'm assuming your investment process is like, I don't know, a couple of months or whatever. What is it you look for? What gets you guys, what gets you excited when you meet a company? Yeah, it's a good question. And I guess like, Yes, there's an element of our thesis being like to get in the door. But I also think, you know, we are very, we are highly thesis driven as a firm. And so it is, yes, kind of gets you in the door. But also I think most of the companies I'll meet with, actually, it will just be that they don't fit our very specific thesis. Um, and so, but I think, you know, to give a better answer, um, I think the things that, I mean, me personally, I am like a talent investor. And I say that because most of my investing experience has been investing in people before they have a company. And so for me, the things that I really look for in companies that I look at investments for now is really like earned secrets. What are the things that uh, as a founder, they've experienced before, problems that they've experienced before um, that most other people don't know about. And often this is in a very specific industry or a very specific function so we're seeing a lot of amazing companies being built in DevOps or kind of operations for developers. Um, it's like, there's not a huge amount of people who do those roles and they can really see these problems very differently to other people. So like, not to expand on that too much, like earned secrets, like what is the, the really unique insight that underlies this company? Um, and I think within that, it's kind of understanding drive, it's understanding, you know, defensibility, why no one else is approaching the space. Um, so yeah, I think that's like a really core cool thing. Um, I also think just because we're so thesis driven, we also start to understand different markets, understand where the opportunities are in kind of the enterprise data stack, you know, where are their gaps and what, where can we find companies that fill those gaps? Um, and yeah, we're very, we only make kind of eight to 10 investments a year. So we're also like very, very critical in the companies that we do invest in. What an amazing quote that is, earn secrets. I fucking love that. But I think because we, because what we invest in like the intentional innovation thing from EF, the thing that like really felt deeply there, like that's exactly what we invest in. Like you can't, uh, if you don't have experience, you've got experience working in enterprise software. Like if you haven't been in that world, if you haven't experienced these problems, like you can't build a Snapchat in this space. Like there's, there's like much less, there's still lots of luck involved, but there's, you're not going to kind of stumble across something and build a product and it's going to work. It's very unlikely. And so the reason that we can actually be very focused on talent and background and like specific experiences is because we're very intent, like those companies are very intentionally built. Um, and so that's what I very much focus on at Backbrain. I love that. So look, tell me, so tell me what are the kind of things that you come across regularly, which you're like, guys, this is just a no brainer. Don't do this. Don't ruin this process by having not done this or by saying that or whatever. Yeah. I've got a really easy one to kick off with uh, talking about red flags. If I have a meeting with a founding team with one of my colleagues who are all male and the meeting is run speaking exclusively to my colleague who will be, who is a male, that's no go. The, the male colleague's not going to stick up for you there. Like that is, that is deal done. That is no, no thank you. Uh, and actually, and it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Like shockingly, it does happen. Oh God. It's bad. It's so bad you're quite big into into like promoting female founders and that's quite a big thing for you isn't it yeah absolutely 
yeah, for sure. How do you how do you change that? Is it a problem? Is there not enough? Is it is it an area that needs affecting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's obviously like a, a, a kind of funny example of like you know people getting that entirely wrong. But I think you know genuinely, we are. I'm I'm investing in a space, uh, deep tech, enterprise software. You know, as an industry, uh, is incredibly male dominated, and so um, yeah. I laugh, but actually, you know, in our portfolio of. Uh, like 30, 35 companies, you know, we, we don't have nearly enough female founder businesses. Like we have, I think it's like, okay, now there's a few more. I think it's like about five companies that have a female founder. And so like for us as a, as a firm, that is something that we are like constantly thinking about how can we see more exceptional female founding talent, but also like operators. Um, I think so one of the things we did about this is that actually my colleague at Crane started an initiative called Women in Enterprise. Um, and so it's specifically an uh, event-based program where we um, bring women in enterprise, so whether they're founders or operators, people working in enterprise technology or B2B technology, um, and we bring people together and have like educational workshops. So led by people who are um, top of their field in maybe like sales or uh, product, and they will give like very actionable um, workshops on in a specific space. And so part of that is the community of bringing more brilliant women in the enterprise space together, kind of that feeling of like, oh, okay, I feel like I'm alone in my day to day, but actually there's lots of people going through these problems. Um, and then secondly, actually making it like super actionable. Like how can you come away from those uh, sessions and be like, oh, actually, if I wanted to start a company, I feel like I have more skills that would enable me to do that. Um, so yeah, that's something that we've built to try and tackle it, but it's, you know, it's a huge problem. Um, and it's it's a very it's a big problem for the specific space that I and we invest in. Yeah, I I can see that. Um, yeah, it's actually really hard. Like trying to you know, as a founder as well. Like you also just try to recruit into tech roles and trying to find female talent tech roles. Like it's like it's it's hard because there there is there is fewer and you know that's you know i don't know what the cause of that is and how to make that better and i guess just recruit as much as you can and i yeah it's um it's something that instantly makes me feel hugely uncomfortable because i feel guilty because i'm i'm a a, a guy <laughs> yeah and i feel like am i perpetuating the problem it's a difficult one and i'm i'm glad that you're doing something about it because yeah it's, i don't understand why that i have literally no idea why there would be a difference i don't understand why there is more one there i don't understand Completely. i don't understand so it comes a bit of the show now where I'll ask you uh, two questions for starting a new thing here, um, which we start this morning. We've got another one. Um, first one, what is your one piece of advice that you would give to every founder, everyone who's starting a business? What's the one piece of advice you would give? Good question. I think, I think the best piece of advice that's actually quite non-obvious is that people love talking about their problems. People like if you get someone on the phone and you ask them like, Hey, like, you know, what's, what's like your number? What keeps you up at night? You can keep them on the phone talking about what keeps them up at night for a really long time. Like people don't get asked that a lot. Um, and so definitely in enterprise software, but I think in building any company, I think you underestimate how much information people will give you if you just ask the right questions. Um, so yeah, that's probably my like top tip. That's a great top tip. I love that. What would be your top tip for somebody who wants to get into VC? Good question. I think I think the thing that's driven me specifically is just really, and for any kind of any career decision, is just like really understanding what is the who is the customer that you want to work for. If you want to work in a kind of relatively commercial role, really understanding why you want to spend you know <laughs> twenty hours a day, uh, you know all of your time 
solving problems for a very specific customer and who that person is. And I think that's what's kind of guided me into like enterprise software, technical founders. Those are the exact customers that I love working with. And if I can make them successful, like I'm going to be happy. Um, and so if you can find that and communicate that to a VC fund, if there's like a specific uh, type of founder that you want to invest in or support, I think that holds a lot of weight. Love that. And uh, last one, what is your, give me a life hack. Cold emails. Oh, yum. Yes. Just everything. Everything good comes from a cold email. You have to send loads of them, but God damn when it goes well. I'm so into that. I would say to people all the time, like there's, it's, it's not spam if it's of value. Yeah. And sometimes it's not and that's okay. But when you hit the one that is, some of my best relationships in industry, founders, etc. cold email. Megan, you've been amazing. Thanks so much for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Keep fighting the good fight. And I imagine you're going to become the biggest name in BC. Thank you.